This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Kim Adams. And I'm Sharonik Boshu. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. Welcome to High Theory. Today, we are talking with Andre Carrington about fandom. Andre, would you mind introducing yourself? I'm Andre Carrington. I'm an associate professor of English at the University of California, Riverside. And I have written the book Speculative Blackness and also co-edited with Abigail DeKosnick, a special issue of Transformative Works and Cultures on fans of color and fandoms of color. I'm also a scholar of comics and graphic novels, and in that capacity, I co-founded with Jennifer Camper and Justin Hall the Queers in Comics Conference. Thank you so much for coming to High Theory, Andre. Sure thing. What the heck is fandom? Fandom is the whole complex of things that people do individually or in groups that shows their investment in and their attachment to media narratives and the people involved in them. So it can be anything from a book club to the consistent habit of watching new episodes of a TV show when it comes on to a lifelong soft place in your heart for a certain record that you heard when you were a kid or a certain musician who grew up and went solo who you follow and root for. If we think of fandom as something that is a descendant of what we used to call groupies of a band, or if you go even further back, friends of an author disseminating their text. So if one were to ask you what the genealogy of fandom as a critical object is, what would that be? Groupies for bands and musicians and actors and artists, and also followings for authors, those are both really deep-rooted places that fandom emerges from. Another key area that I think has been really influential in the form that fandom takes in contemporary culture is science fiction and fantasy fandom. At least in the American version in the United States in the early 20th century, as people published pulp magazines with fantasy and science fiction stories and then published letters from the readers of those magazines, that set in motion a whole culture of reception and correspondence and engagement between authors and audiences that we see continuing in all kinds of cultural work today. So my next question is, how do we use fandom? 
In my book, I talk about fandom historically because one of the things that I think can be useful for scholars when we're trying to understand popular culture and the way audience members process the images that are put out there in the culture industries, we can learn a lot from the habits and the critical practices that people have adopted in the past. So we saw in the 1990s a really great emergence of scholarship on what was then contemporaneous fandom in the form of conventions and fanzines, often around elements of culture that people were aware of, but maybe had a really strong cult following and a more casual following. This was the era of TV shows like The Prisoner and Blake Seven and the original Star Trek series. Mm. People published fanzines and made up songs and dressed up in costume the way that you see at big events like Comic-Con today. But they also did all kinds of intimate things like sharing their original fiction with their peers and expressing romantic love and sexual fantasies about the characters and the actors. And that kind of stuff, it not only had an impression on what those popular cultural texts meant in their own time. It not only continues for any medium, any narrative that's going on today, there's a pocket of fandom about it. But that stuff has roots. And once those fanzines are published, say in the 80s and 90s, for one, there are older and longer standing fan cultures that go back in textual forms that we can retrieve in libraries and archives or in people's own personal collections. And there are long traditions like letters, columns, and comic books and message boards on the early versions of the internet that reflect how fandom has been a part of popular culture as long as these mass cultural forms have been around. In Speculative Blackness, I try to trace some of that history to examine how ideas about race and racism manifest in fan cultures and how people on either end, the authors or the audiences of popular texts, are conjoining the ideas of race and genre of Blackness and ideas and conventions in science fiction and fantasy to see how those ideas have evolved and really how they've passed back and forth over time and moved from one situation to the next. When we were discussing this episode, I know that we talked both about fan fiction as a concept and adaptation as a concept. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about your thoughts on adaptation and like the various forms it takes, you know, slash pairings shipping a pair. Race and gender are definitely two indices along which this kind of efflorescence of adaptation and fanfiction works. So if you could give us a little bit of the lay of the land there. Slash is this term that refers to the punctuation mark between the names of characters, often the names of characters in a romantic pairing, and often in homo-romantic or sometimes hetero-romantic pairings in fanfiction, which is creative stories written by fans about the material, the settings, the characters in the art that we consume. A productive way to think about this is articulated by Carolyn Dinshaw in her book, How Soon Is Now. Among the different varieties of fiction that fans create, we can think of fan fiction and fan art as something like adaptations or something like Mm. continuations or tie-ins, but the distinction that we should make and bear in mind that's critically useful is that what fans create in fan fiction and fan art and cosplay and all of that is amateur cultural production. Even though they might themselves be professionals, right, in the art form, they create this fan work on an amateur basis. And 
the professional extensions of stories, sequels to stories, commissioned performances, tie-in products, well, those things, to the extent that they're legitimated by the owners of the property and the intellectual property rights that comprise media texts, they're distinguished from the amateur productions, not by their quality or even the material investment in them, but just in the provenance, the chain of ownership over who is making what for whom. So we learn a lot from examining both what fans create and from all of the different variations on media texts, whether it's TV shows or novels that tie in or toys or Happy Meal prizes that you get that are themed around a popular property like that, whether they're created professionally or on an amateur basis, what's more interesting, I think, is to think about what the creative impulse is, what desires does it satisfy, what reward or what investment does it speak to? Right. So let me ask you my final question, which is how will fandom or a fandom or all fandoms save the world? Oh, man. Um, If any fandom is going to save the world, let me think about it this way. If there's a fandom that's going to save the world, it's probably Doctor Who fandom because (laughs) they've been around for so long and because like they're so organized and multi-generational and sophisticated and multifaceted. Yeah, And because they've been around for so long, they've been fighting out their issues long enough to probably be in a, a good place when things go down. Yeah. But what I think is uh, the range of things that people can do as participants in fan cultures, the range of things people can do both attest to you know, their dreams, their aspirations, the problems that they see and how they confront them, and also... I think it's important for me to observe as I analyze in my writing on fan cultures often, we reproduce, we recapitulate the dynamics of the society around us and our outlook on the world in our own affective attachments to cultural narratives and our own amateur publishing, our own cultural production. And that includes critics as well as amateur fans. All we're doing when we author a critique when we offer a reading, an interpretation, our own rendition of a cultural text, even if we have you know, degrees in film studies or are professors of English or what have you, we're offering an interpretation. And whether that's professional or amateur, one thing we learn from fandom is that you can't really take your affective investment out of it. Mm. You can't really be dispassionate. And sometimes it's to your advantage to express that, to articulate what the nature of your investment is. As critics, as people who want to make use of the political and the social transformative potential of what goes on in fandom, it's just important to be mindful of the fact that fandom's a part of life. It's a part of our existence in shared societies with shared cultures and with disparate investments in the culture around us. So whatever attitudes, beliefs we bring to culture and media, whatever stories we favor or disfavor, we really can take stock of how we engage with that stuff and what we make for our own purposes. We can engage with that as part of our grappling with the society that these narratives are a part of. You know, that's such a wide-ranging and also hopeful description, but I'm really struck by the way that you've used the word amateur as this kind of critical modality, and which makes me think that media cultural behemoths like Marvel or Netflix, they kind of 
co-opts the rhetoric of fandom a little bit. So Netflix, for example, will promote language about, oh, wouldn't it be nice if this character got together with that character? So I'm wondering what that does to the fundamental and crucial amateurness of fandom. I love that question because it captures something that's a real meaningful phenomenon that I don't think the producers of these mass media texts or the public as a whole has grappled with in all its significance. Brands and in the age of media consolidation, the what, like five publishers and like four media companies, the ones who own all of the property that can't be called independent, they not only monopolize for its own sake, but in the name of controlling the narrative and maintaining the branding, they have gotten very good at the modes of branding and mass communication and even kind of peer to peer communication that are very much coincident with fandom in this era, in the information age, in the age of social media, and in the age of cross-cultural communication, where people really link to each other across national boundaries and languages and in diaspora. That's both really cool on a certain level, because it does give people many points of entry, but it's also really problematic in the sense that, sure, we can view a homegrown, cherished, heartfelt investment as something subject to being co-opted or branded, being commodified and kind of sold back to us as a product, instead of having its own value that we determine in our own lives. So there are risks, right, for all people in engaging in fandom in an organized and structured way, in the same way that there's no totally ethical consumption under capitalism insofar as there is monopoly capitalism. Yeah. But we already know that. Yeah. What I think we can learn about the risk that's unique from the way that it has evolved over the ages in the existence of fandoms and fan cultures, what we can learn now is that fan communities and people's individual desire to engage in more collective and more organized ways and to create things that might be vulnerable to commodification, people's desires to do that will always take on different forms. And people can still, I think, autonomously configure their own affective relationships to figure out what their own feelings are about whatever the material is that's out there. And that's something that branding and marketing and capture can never really monopolize Mm. because it's so inherently multifarious, so varied, so personal. What that means is, yes, it's kind of fascinating that a mass media corporation will take hold of the subtext of a narrative and say, hey, people are invested in seeing the interaction between John Boyega's character and Oscar Isaacs, yeah, between seeing them um, on screen, let's market that desire to them as a selling point, but yeah. maybe not fulfill the desire in a way that kind of rationalizes the investment of how much it costs to see a movie. Right. That That's an example, <laughs> right, of how that sort of thing can go awry. But at the same time, what those culture industries cannot necessarily commodify or can't certainly can't like weaponize against people who are vulnerable to seeing our precious personal fantasies commodified on screen is the element of 
those things that stoke our desires that are fantasy. So that to the extent that we articulate the stories we would like to see told or imagine the situations we would like to see portrayed as fantasy, we're necessarily claiming spaces of representation for ourselves. Right. So for sure, there's a version of it that will play out on screen that might not be what it looks like and might kind of give us the okie doke, right? We'll bait and switch us on a certain level. But at the same time, that doesn't stop anybody who goes to a convention dressed up like one of those characters from making out with a person dressed up like another one of those characters, right? Yeah. It's the ownership and the spontaneity and the possibility of animating and resignifying those images that only technically belong to someone else that capital can't take away from us insofar as it's only formally different, right? Yeah. We can give those things forms that are ours, that are not identical to the forms they assume as commodities. And it's that creativity that I think is analytically really useful right? because it's weird because our vulnerability to things like co-optation and commodification, the material part of it is already sort of spoken for, right? Once you pay the price of the ticket, the imaginative and the affective part, well, that's something we can continue fighting about on the internet forever and continue treasuring in our hearts forever and telling our own stories about forever because that's ours to do. Thank you, Andre, so much for coming to High Theory and talking to us about fandom. Oh, I'm so glad. <laughs> thank you so much. Excellent. Oh, this is great. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, Patreon, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Sharonik Bosu manages our social media presence. Owen Quinn composes our theme music, and Kim Adams and Sharonik Bosu edit our audio. You can also find us at hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day.